Uh, we're in a series uh, called Faith That Works. Uh, we're, we're working our way through uh, the letter of James, a uh, letter written to first century uh, Christians with very, very practical commands that tell us how to live uh, the Christian life. And, and James is going to do this repeatedly as we go through uh, this, this letter. He wants us to know that unless the faith that we profess turns the, the gears of action, the gears of works, um, it's really no faith at all if, if, that, if that doesn't happen. Um, and this morning we're, we're going to see another example of that in James chapter 2. As we work our way through James's letter each week, I have the verses on the screens and uh, you can follow along that way. A lot of people like to follow along in a paper Bible. And if you're here this morning and don't have a paper Bible, our ushers are coming down the aisle just now and uh, would be happy to put one in your hands if you'll just signal them somehow. And uh, if you don't have one at home, please feel free to take this one uh, with you. We think everyone should have uh, access to uh, a Bible. I do want to take just a moment and thank Pastor Russ Richardson for his message last week that that took us through the last part of James chapter 1. Russ's third point uh, about our words and our works showing the reality or authenticity uh, of uh, our worship uh, is is how he said it, uh, really proved to be a, a really perfect handoff to what we were going to read in the first part of chapter 2, which shouldn't really surprise us because you know, I think you know, James didn't write chapters and verses. So as he's writing this letter, he didn't say chapter 1 and then chapter 2, and he didn't mark them all with verse numbers, right? That came much later. It's, it's just a letter uh, that, that, that he wrote. Um, Thorwald Lorenzen uh, may not be a name you're familiar with. He's a Baptist pastor and professor of systematic theology at the International Baptist Theological Seminary in Zurich, uh, Switzerland. And he has summed up both the need to and the tremendous challenge of preaching the text we're in this morning. And he sums up that challenge by saying, it is very seldom that this text is taken seriously. Now, I'm pretty sure that you all are not interested in me preaching a text that I don't take seriously. And I sure don't want to waste my time on preaching a text that you aren't going to take seriously, right? So uh, it seems that we better pray (laughs) for all of us before we dive into this. Let me lead us. Lord, as we open our Bibles uh, this morning uh, to listen to, read uh, the words that by your Spirit you directed James to write down, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Uh, minds to understand what's going on here, and maybe most importantly, hearts uh, to receive 
what it is that you have to say to us this morning. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, the main point, uh, I'm, I'm just going to say this right, right out of the gate, the main point of James's message to us this morning uh, is repeated three times in this text in three different verses in three different ways. And, and James moves uh, from the most specific uh, out to the, the most general. And, and with each one, with each time that he reiterates it, it becomes more forceful in its consequences. And, and so I'm thinking maybe it would be most helpful uh, to begin by looking at those three verses in, in reverse order, from the most general down to the most specific, and then we'll work our way back out. So here's what we're going to hear James say this morning. In verse 12, James tells us to speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. That means, he says in verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself. And then very specifically, he says in verse 1, don't show favoritism to people based on outward appearances. And, and the rest of the text is really just James either explaining that or, or making a case for uh, or, or giving reasons why we should not show favoritism. But that's what the message is about. That's what James chapter 2, 1 through 13 is all about. So let's, uh, let's start. We, we came down from, from broad to specific. We'll, we'll start there at verse 1 and then work our way through this passage. James says, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our English word favoritism comes from a Greek word that literally means receiving the face. Isn't that interesting? Receiving the face. To, to receive the face means to make judgments about people based on external appearance. And as we'll see in a moment, James applies this principle uh, to differences in dress that reflect um, contrasting social, economic uh, situations for people. Uh, but the Greek word that he uses here is plural. So it, it really is acts of favoritism, indicating that there's maybe a wide range of, of kinds of favoritism. So other words that, that might apply could be discrimination, prejudice, racism, chauvinism, bigotry. All of these are the kinds of behavior that, that are contained in the word favoritism. They, they all have that same result of showing favoritism. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses the same word in Romans 2 in the context of racial differences. He uses the same word again in Ephesians 6 in the context of slaves and masters. Uh, Exodus 23 in the, in the Old Testament, Exodus 23, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 21, and, and others. But, but these very specifically speak against showing favoritism. And sometimes it's talking about showing favoritism uh, against the poor. 
Sometimes it's showing favoritism against foreigners. Sometimes uh, it's showing favoritism against family members, even. So while James gives a, a very specific example here, we can see really from the whole of Scripture that showing favoritism of any kind is wrong. And the reason uh, given in, in really all of those passages is because God doesn't show favoritism. And, and we are to be uh, behave like God. We are to be a reflection of, of his people, Right? So God doesn't show favoritism. But James isn't just saying, hey, you shouldn't do that. That's not nice, right? He says you can't hold on to faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time behave just like the world in the ways that you value people. Uh, J.B. Phillips paraphrases it. This way, don't ever attempt, my brothers, to combine snobbery with faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The New Revised Standard Version puts it to us as a question. It says, my brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? There's a disconnect when we do this. James's point is we can't claim to be a follower of Jesus and then treat people with favoritism. And then he gives a very practical example, very familiar to most of us probably. He says in verse 2, For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, Well, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, you stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James' example is is pretty clear. Most Bible scholars think that James isn't just using hypothetical language here, uh, but he's using a real example taken from uh, some of the early church's gatherings. Remember, James is the first New Testament book we have, so it's it's written really early on. Um, So it seems from this that some believers uh, were fawning over people who looked right looked like they were important, looked like they had means. Fawning over those people, but discriminating against those who didn't look right. Remember, it's, it's all about receiving the face. It's about those outward appearances. And in verse 4, James clearly says that behavior is evil. You're judging people with evil thoughts. In verses 5 through 7, James tries to reason with these brothers and sisters. He he says, uh, first, you're you're working against God if you behave this way. Why? Well, because God chose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom. Now, this is 
This is very similar language to, to what Jesus said in his sermon on the mount. You remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James is restating what Jesus has already said. Now, of course, not all poor people have placed their faith in Jesus. We know that. James knows that. But those who recognize their spiritual poverty are the ones who end up rich in faith. It's the way it works. You know, in another place, Jesus said it can be very difficult for the rich person to get into the kingdom. Why? Well, it's, it's harder to recognize your spiritual poverty if you, if you think you have everything you need. I'm fine, right? So it's more difficult for a rich person. It doesn't mean that rich people don't come to faith. Of course they do. And it doesn't mean that all poor people do come to faith. Of course they don't. But, but here's, here's something we know about God. God has always leaned toward the poor, toward the oppressed. He has compassion on them. He knows that many of them are there because of people or systems that have oppressed them. And God's people should be like God. And yet James says in verse 6, you've dishonored the poor. And, and then James seems to sort of step out of the context of this local church gathering. And he, and he tries to reason with the believers from a place of how irrational, how stupid really, it is for them to be fawning over rich people. Uh, in their first century context, it was the rich who were oppressing the believers and, and dragging them into court, as, as James says. It was the rich who were blaspheming the name of Christ that had been invoked over these believers in their baptism. So James is, is kind of saying here, why on earth? Why on earth would you give preferential treatment to them? This doesn't make any sense. I, I read a couple of stories this week about two different pastors who wanted to find out how their congregations would measure up uh, to, to James's words about discriminating against poor people. Uh, one pastor on his, his very first Sunday in, in his new church dressed up as a homeless man in ratty clothes. He rubbed something stinky on his clothes, so he smelled really, really bad. He went to sit in the front row, and an usher said, no, 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 you, you can't sit here, and took him to the, to the back of the room. Um, no one talked to him. In fact, they, they kind of gave him a wide berth, probably because of the smell. He sat there and listened to the music and the announcements with this collection of empty chairs around him. And then one of the elders stood up to introduce the new pastor. Of course, the congregation was shocked, some of them embarrassed, when this shabbily dressed man that they had snubbed stepped into the pulpit. Some were even angry that they had been tricked like that. So that was one story. Another story, a different pastor in a different town dressed up as a homeless man and, and sat on the ground out, outside of the church with his shopping cart full of his belongings, right? And people from the congregation stopped on their way into church and they prayed with him. 
They brought him food and, and water and some hot coffee. They invited him to come in and sit with them. Uh, this is all captured on, on video. One little girl, that oh, was so sweet. She said, you can come sit with us if you'd like to. When it was time for the sermon, he went inside, he pushed his cart down the center aisle. And as he stood in the pulpit, taking off his disguise, long hair, beard, ratty clothes, the pastor was moved to tears because of how his congregation had, had treated him, treated what they perceived to be a homeless man. I was thinking about this, and I, I really believe that I would be like that second pastor with our congregation. Um, I actually thought about trying this. <laughs> I have a son who's into theater and does marvelous job with makeup. I, I, I felt like he probably could pull this off, you know. But I think if I had, I, I would have been really proud of you all. Because I've seen you do this. I've seen you take care of poor people who were parked outside our front doors and cold and needed something to eat and a cup of coffee, prayer, help of, of other kinds. I've seen you do it. But I'm not saying we don't struggle with favoritism, because I think we do. I think we all do. I think at times we're all guilty of making judgments about people based on appearance, appearances. I've done it. I've done it in this place. I'm not going to give specific examples because I, I don't want to publicly call out anyone uh, who has made comments that, that show favoritism. And I don't want to embarrass people who uh, those comments were made about. Let me just suffice, let's, let's just say this. We're all in danger, every single one of us, of showing this kind of favoritism, of, of doing this kind of evil. Uh, just in case any of us still think we're innocent, which is possible, uh, James broadens the scope of what he's talking about. He, he, he sort of casts his net wider. He says in verse 8, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James is quoting here from Leviticus chapter 19, uh, very specifically verse 17, it's a section of the Old Testament law that ends with the statement, love your neighbor as yourself, for I am Yahweh. Right? And James calls this the royal law. It's the only place in the Bible that we have that term. Bible scholars believe that James means the same thing here by royal law as he does when he refers to law of freedom, uh, down in verse 12 of this chapter, and also in verse 25 of, of chapter 1. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses similar language in Galatians 5.13, where he says, For you were called to be free, 
brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but to serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. So it's interesting that that Paul, who argues in other places that we're no longer under Mosaic law, for instance in Romans, says here that we're still under this law that demands that we love others. But why would he change here in verse 8 from law of freedom that he uses, or law of liberty in some of your translations, uh, in chapter 1, verse 25, or in chapter 2, verse 12? Why why here in verse 8 does he use royal law? What's what's going on here? I I think there are two uh, possible answers, uh, which actually both point to the same place in the Gospels. Actually, three different places that are all giving an account of the same conversation that that Jesus had. Um, uh, Daniel read from one of those uh, earlier. Uh, So when a Pharisee asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, Jesus answered, the most important command is, listen, Israel, or hear, O Israel. It's from the Shema in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We sang these words just a few moments ago. And then Jesus said the second is, or in, uh, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, there is no other command greater than these. So, why do I think James uh, used royal law here? Well, one possibility uh, is that Jesus says there's no command greater than these. This is the highest command. This is the king of commands, if, if you want to say it that way. So, that could be the reason that he says royal law, because it's higher than any other command. But I think James is doing something more here. It, it, it certainly is that, but I think it's more. Uh, James began this letter, you can flip back one page and, and see this, saying that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, Messiah means anointed king. It's, it's, it's what it means. At the beginning of chapter 2, James does it again. He addresses brothers and sisters who have put their faith in King Jesus, our glorious King Jesus. In verse 5, he talks about the kingdom. Do you see a theme here? So when James adds the adjective royal to the noun law, he literally means a law belonging to the king, a royal law. Now, James is the only New Testament writer to cite both sides of the royal law. Love for God in uh, 1.12 and 2.5, and love for others in 2.8. He's the only one who does this. But remember, James is Jesus' half-brother. He heard what Jesus said. He grew up with Jesus. Combining these, uh, love for God, love for others, 
Scott McKnight suggests that what James is saying might be something like this. If you really live out the royal law of King Jesus in its full intent, the law to love your neighbor as yourselves as the companion to loving God with everything you have, then you will love the poor whom you have recently despised. I think that gets to what James is trying to say to us. Verse 9, James uses strong language for describing the person who does not live out the royal law of King Jesus. He says, if, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is really strong language. And I'll give you fair warning, it's going to get stronger. I I, I think as Christians, we are sort of conditioned to think that the law doesn't apply to us anymore, right? But James isn't talking about the Mosaic law. In fact, in Acts 15, James was the one who ruled at the Jerusalem council that the Mosaic law was not to be imposed on new believers. What James is, is talking about is the royal law of King Jesus, the law of freedom, the law that allows us to finally love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That law, James makes clear, and Jesus makes clear, is still very much intact. In verses 10 and 11, James argues that there are really no uh, degrees of sin. So if you're guilty of breaking the law with one sin, it's the same as committing all the sins. So where we might like to say, well, really showing a little favoritism, it's not that bad, is it? James says the result is the same. You're a lawbreaker. It's like only partly breaking a pane of glass. If it's broken, it's broken, right? That's what he's getting at here. Well, the last two verses of this section are, uh, on one hand, the broadest, but also the most serious in, in their consequences. So in verse 12, James says, Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. <coughs> Excuse me. I've tried to show uh, this morning that James uses law of freedom synonymously with royal law, uh, which is articulated by Jesus in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 10, as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. James says this is the law that we will be judged by, at the end of time when Jesus returns. This is the law of King Jesus, the royal law. And then in verse 13, um, troubling words, James says that if we have not shown mercy, then our judgment will be without mercy. See why I say... As he, as he gets broader, the consequences become more dire. 
more intense. We've, we've seen this along the way in this series already, that James is often reiterating what he heard his half-brother Jesus teach. So James heard Jesus say, Blessed are the merciful for what? Do you remember? They will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. It's from Matthew 5, verse 7. In verse 13, James sort of flips it. He, he states it negatively, basically saying, Cursed are those who are not merciful, for they will not be shown mercy. Now, I, I can imagine some of you might be saying to yourselves this morning, but I, I thought we were judged by our faith in Christ. That's true. But our faith in Christ, James tells us repeatedly, will manifest itself in how we live. Do you see? The words we say and the deeds we do reveal if we truly have placed our faith in Jesus. There's there's this great statement made in 1 Peter 2.10. Peter says to Gentile Christians, once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And James says, people who understand that they have received mercy will show mercy to others. In other words, if I'm not merciful to others, Maybe I haven't really understood God's mercy. Maybe I haven't really received God's mercy. John Piper says it this way. A Christian is a person who has seen and tasted and lives on the mercy of Christ. If there is no mercy in our lives, if we show partiality because of riches or race and come to no remorse and no repentance, we prove that we do not really know him and we will perish. But if we have tasted his mercy and treasure it and live in the liberty of his love, then we will show mercy to others. And that mercy will be the evidence of our faith which carries us through the judgment. James 2.13 is a sobering verse, and it ought to be to every one of us. But James doesn't end the paragraph on a negative note. He ends with a word of hope. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. What does this mean? The the word James uses for triumphs over describes the posture of a gladiator, a warrior standing over their defeated enemy on the battlefield. It's very strong language. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But whose mercy is it that triumphs over judgment? Uh, Bible scholars are kind of torn on this because the context doesn't suggest that it's God's mercy. Even even though it's God's mercy and grace that brings us to salvation, James is clear here that if we don't show mercy, we won't be shown mercy. So what does it mean that mercy triumphs over judgment? Um, 
Jeff Stott uh, has written a little bit about this, and, and I think he has it right when he says that mercy is our weapon against judgmentalism. Mercy is our weapon against judgmentalism. What does that mean? What, is, what does that look like? See, all of our, all of our lives, um, we judge people. We do. Um, whether, whether we want to or not, we, we judge people. And we can either judge them based on their appearances, their race, their age, uh, their affluence, their achievements, or, or some other external aspect. And if we do that, we're showing favoritism, right? So we can judge them that way, or we can judge them based on mercy and judge everyone based on mercy. Understanding that, that we have been shown undeserved mercy and, and that the royal law insists that we do likewise, we do the same to others. See, somewhere along the way, we come from different backgrounds, all of us, but somewhere along the way, we've, we've picked up an assumption or an attitude toward certain people who look a certain way, sound a certain way, act a certain way. And, and we might ignore them, we might look down on them, might even ridicule them. And James says, don't do that. God says, don't do that. I'm not that way. You don't be that way. Instead, show mercy. Mercy is, is compassion. Mercy reaches out, out to help those who have a need. Mercy is what causes you to love your enemy. Ugh. It's hard. Mercy is what motivates you to help a stranger. Mercy is kind when others are unkind. Mercy is loving when others are unloving. Mercy treats everyone equally, even when I'm not being treated equally. See, any, any selfish person can show favoritism, but it takes a transformed heart to demonstrate real mercy. Mercy is your weapon against favoritism, against judgmentalism. When we choose mercy, the judgmentalism that, that lurks in the shadows of our hearts, probably for all of us, when we choose mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And of course, we are absolutely unable to perfectly live out this royal law of love without the presence and the power of the Spirit of Christ living and working in us. We are every moment of every day dependent on him to help us. But because James's words are so uh, direct and the consequences are so uh, dire, I think he intends that we actually do this. And that with Jesus, we can and we must. In, in my introduction, I mentioned Thorwald Lorenzen's statement that this text is rarely 
taken seriously. And my question, or rather, I think the Bible's question to us all this morning is, will we take it seriously? Um, For about a year now, I've been saying at least once a month that our mission here at Grace is to love God, love people, and teach others to do the same. It comes from this royal law that James is talking about, that Jesus talks about in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 10. It's where it comes from. But I'm amazed how many people push back against that. Uh, I've had people say, well, yeah, I know you're all about love, but fill in the blank. Is that really realistic? Things like that. Have people say loving God and loving people is nice, but we're not going to deal with the real issues. Folks, I don't know how Jesus could be more clear. I, I really don't. He said there is no commandment higher than these, no commandment greater than these than to love God and love your neighbor. Some of you may know the name Russell Moore. He's the editor of of, uh, Christianity Today magazine. He said a couple of months ago in an interview that he's heard from so many pastors who try to preach the Sermon on the Mount and have people from the congregation complain that they're just promoting a bunch of liberal nonsense. And these pastors say to the people in their congregation, I'm quoting Jesus. And in some cases, the response is, well, that doesn't work anymore. James disagrees. James says, it's the only way it will work. Let's pray. Before we go to prayer, let me just ask you to do a little checkup on how you're doing at loving others. And I want to suggest that maybe you invite God to bring to mind a person, or maybe it's a whole group of people that you have either shown favoritism toward or prejudice against. Is there perhaps even someone in our own church that you tend to think less of for whatever reason? Or someone that you think more highly of for reasons that are purely external? I think we all need to ask God to give us a heart of mercy for those people. Lord, would you remind us of the mercy we've been shown? And through the prompting of your Holy Spirit, compel us to show it to others. Help us, Lord, follow through with the royal law of love that is the standard for all people who will live 
in his kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.